Let's take our Bibles and turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. I want to speak this morning on the subject, endure all things. Endure all things. Uh, as, as, as we enter the, the closing weeks of the semester, really we're beginning now the final month of the year, a uh, season of transition, a season of change, all kinds of pressures mounting in such a season. Uh, the, the question is, will we be able to endure all things? And, and I think that as Christians, if there's anyone in the world that's able to endure all things, it's us, because we've got so many encouragements to plod and persevere. And that's what Paul's doing here for Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 2, beginning of verse 8, Paul says, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead, according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. William Carey, the great Baptist missionary from England went to India expecting great things from God and attempting great things for God, and God certainly blessed his ministry. He's been called by many the father of modern missions, but uh, there were certainly trials and tribulations that Carey and, and his family and his companions had to face there along the way. You, you read his story, you'll find that during his time there, his wife became very very sick and ill, had to leave him in India. One of his closest friends forsook him, betrayed him. The, the British government seemed to like checkmate him at, at every move he tried to make. You can imagine the, the, the hurt and the hardship of serving in such a context and under such circumstances. At, at one point, he, he lost much of his work in a warehouse fire, he faced all kinds of trouble and tribulation, but he continued to persevere. During trying times, he didn't stop trying, and he didn't stop trusting. In fact, he admitted that. He, he, he acknowledged and admitted that God gave him an ability to persevere. If you asked William Carey what the secret of his success in, in ministry was, he'd tell you it was the ability to endure. In fact, he said this to his nephew Eustace one time. Listen to these words, quote, if after my removal... Anyone should think it worth his while to write my life. I will give you a criterion by which you may judge its correctness. In other words, when I'm, when I'm gone, if somebody gets it in their head to come along after me and write my biography, here's how you'll know they did an accurate and excellent job. If he gives me credit for being a plotter, he will describe me justly. Anything beyond this will be too much. I can plod, I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this I owe everything. 
the ability to plod and, and the ability to persevere in a definite direction for an extended period of time is one of the great keys to success. Success in life, success in, in marriage, success in ministry, success in your education uh, requires resoluteness, fixedness, focus, guts, grit, determination, and doggedness. Life is hard. You don't need me to tell you that. Ministry is tough. You know, success, for the most part, doesn't just get thrown in our laps. We need to plod. We need to persevere. That's why Paul says in, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, let us not grow weary while doing good. Don't, don't give up. Endure. That's why he, if you think he wrote the book of Hebrews, he says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36, you have need of endurance. Because gritty, gutsy grace is central to life and to ministry. It's been well said that perseverance is the answer when there are no answers. And trying times are not times to stop trying. So, therefore, I want us to come and look at these verses in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Because endurance is at the heart of, of this last letter that Paul writes to Timothy his protege in the ministry, his son in the faith. Timothy's a minister of the gospel, and as Paul envisions and anticipates his own death, he, uh, he writes this letter to encourage Timothy to, to be faithful and be focused and be fixed. Why? Because he realizes that this kind of endurance is not going to come easily or automatically to Timothy. Timothy was timid in spirit. That's why Paul's got to tell him in, in chapter 1, verse 7, Hey, Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but God has given us a spirit of power. He's concerned that, that, that maybe Timothy might buckle under the pressure of the circumstances of his, of his ministry. Over in chapter 3, Paul is going to outline the kind of days that they were in and the kind of days that were coming Violent days, turbulent days, difficult days, perilous times when men are going to be lovers of self. They're going, to, they're, they're going to hate everything that's good. Cruel days. And so Timothy's timid in spirit. He's ministering in a harsh environment. And then on top of all that, he's got the, the negative example back in chapter 1, verse 15, of many who have, who have, who have turned away in Asia. And as if that's not enough, Timothy's also aware that Paul is sitting in prison, and he's probably not getting out of this one, and that while, while Paul's sitting there in prison, he's, he's all alone. You can read about that in chapter 4, 9 to 16. Many have forsaken Paul at, uh, at his defense. And so Paul, Paul's aware of this, and these things are piling up in his mind, and he's concerned that Timothy might, in his timidity, become frightened and cowardly. And, and give up. And so in this book and, in, and right here in this passage, he gives Timothy four arguments that will help Timothy to keep on keeping on, to, to not stop trying or trusting during trying times. Here they are. Number one, the empowering reality of the resurrection. Number two, the unstoppable power of the gospel. Number three, the glorious work of evangelism. And number four, the promise of eternal life. These, these four things are going to help 
Timothy to endure. And that's the theme of this paragraph, by the way. It's, it's all about endurance. Verse 10, therefore I endure all things. Verse, verse 12, if we endure, we shall also reign. He's saying, hey, Timothy, I've endured. Now you need to endure, and we need to endure, because that's the mark of a true Christian. That's the mark of a, of a lasting ministry that God will bless. That word endure in the Greek is hupomeno. That means to remain under. And that's, that's the question. Can you remain under the pressure? Can you, can you take the heat? Can you bear the burden? Can you pay the price involved in, in being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you've got the reasons to do so, and you've got the re resources to do so. So let's look at, at these four arguments that will help Timothy and will help you and will help me to endure all things. Number one, what I'm calling a great win. A great win. This is verse 8. This is the empowering reality of the resurrection. Look at what Paul says in verse 8. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Now, Paul didn't create the gospel, but he had embraced the gospel and experienced the gospel, and so he, he, he speaks of it in personalized terms. It's my gospel. This is, this is the gospel that's impacted my life. This is the gospel that I have shared with you. And, and what Paul's saying to Timothy here is that, Timothy, the resurrection ought to resurrect your faltering resolve. You need, you need to live in the light of an empty tomb. I, I don't know who said this first, but I like it, so I'm going to quote it, although I didn't come up with it. When, when, the, when your tank is empty, remember that the tomb is empty. That's what Paul's saying to, to his protege in the faith, Timothy. That's the point. Remember, Jesus Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Timothy, that'll fill your tank. That'll, that'll put some spring in your step, you know? That, that'll, that'll, that will become to you spiritual smelling salts when you're knocked down and you don't think you can go one more round. Jesus is risen. Death doesn't have the last word. And the, and the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is alive and at work at you. It can resurrect your faltering resolve. It can fortify your commitment to the gospel. In fact, for those of you who by now maybe know a little bit of Greek, some of you probably know more Greek than I do, but um, th this Greek verb in uh, verse 8, for remember, carries the idea of a, of a command that must be continually followed by you. This is a present active imperative. It's in the imperative mood, so it's a command. This is not optional. He's saying, Timothy, this is what you must do. This is non-negotiable. You must remember. And it's in the present tense. Timothy, th this is what you've got to do presently, and you've got to keep on doing it continually. And it's an active um, voice. This isn't something passive where Timothy's just supposed to sort of like sit on his hands and have this done to him. No, Timothy, you remember this. This is on you to remember. The ball's in your court. You remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Now, you might think to yourself, as I did when I read these verses, how hard can that be? I mean, who in their right mind is going to forget that the Lord Jesus Christ is risen from the... This is, this is one of the central 
foundational realities of the Christian faith. Who on earth is going to forget that? I would never forget that. Really? Really? I think you and I need to remember how easily we forget. Let me give you an example of this. Psalm 106, verses 19 to 22. You read about the children of Israel in their wilderness wanderings and... They've come out of Egypt, and they're walking in disobedience. They're not living by faith. They're turning into idolatry. The psalm says they made a calf in Horeb. They worshipped a, a molded image. Thus, they changed the glory in, their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. Now, listen to this. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, Wondrous works in the land of Ham. Awesome things by the Red Sea. Think about that. You're not even one generation out from the Exodus. They're in the wilderness. It's the same group of people. It's during these 40 years of wilderness. They're not even one generation out from the Exodus, and they'd forgotten God and all the wonderful and amazing things that he did for them in Egypt. You mean, you mean they forgot the plagues? You mean they forgot about, about the Passover and the angel of death? You're telling me they forgot about the Red Sea? Yes. Now that word forgot doesn't mean that it's completely wiped from their memory bank, and they're not even aware of it, although that might be partly true. That, that, that word forgot has to do with them acting as if it wasn't true. It's not that they needed to learn new information. They already knew what God did. They needed to remember it. They weren't living in light of it. They weren't applying it. They, they weren't allowing what God had done and who God had been to impact their life and their living. Oh, it's staggering how forgetful you and I can be. It's amazing how hard it is for us to remember. And you say, there's no way I'd forget to remember that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. You do it all the time. And so do I. When I get depressed and discouraged, anxious, angry, and I could go on and on and on and list out all, all things, all evidences that you and I forget to remember that Jesus is risen from the dead. And Paul says, Timothy, I'm commanding you to do it. You've got to do it repeatedly, and it's on you to do it. Powerful. And you know why he tells Timothy to remember this truth. Because it's so central. So many important, vital things hang on the fact, the reality, that Jesus is risen from the dead. Well, we don't have time to go there, but, um, you know, a text that I love to preach around Easter, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19, Paul makes the argument, if Christ be not risen, then our, our preaching is, is pointless, our faith is futile, we're still in our sins, we're, we're men to be pitied by the world, 
Our preaching is pointless. Our faith is futile. Death wins. Sins are unforgiven. Suffering is worthless. You'd better remember that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. You'd better understand how pivotal and primary the doctrine of Jesus' bodily resurrection is to your Christian faith and to your Christian life. Because when you get that, and when that gets a hold of you, you'll have energy to endure. You'll have power to persevere. Because here's the thing. Paul's not using the resurrection here uh, uh, as, a, as, a, as a past event. Or, and, and Paul's not using the resurrection here as a, as a, as a future expectation. Paul's bringing up the resurrection here to describe a present experience. At times, he'll take us back to the historical reality of Jesus' resurrection and, and, and describe how it's the proof of God's acceptance of Jesus' suffering. Romans chapter 1, uh, verse, I think it's verse 4. In the resurrection, God declares Jesus to be the Son of God. His, his work on the cross, full, final, phenomenal. Sometimes he'll take us back to the, to the, to the past historical reality. Sometimes he'll, he'll take us forward into the future, and he'll say, you know what? You know, one day death is going to swallow you up just like it swallowed Jesus up, but have no fear. Jesus is risen. He tore the bars away, and because he lives, you will live also. Sometimes, Sometimes Paul will take us back. Sometimes Paul will take us forward, but many times he'll show the resurrection and he'll, and he'll discuss the resurrection as a present experience. He'll, he'll talk about the resur- resurrection as something that, that, in some sense, we're already experiencing. Because spiritually speaking, we've all been raised from the dead, right? Amen? Ephesians 2, you who are dead in your trespasses and sins, he made alive. And he seated you in the heavenlies with, with Christ. Paul will often use this kind of language that the, the power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in you. Ephesians 1, 19 to 20, Paul says, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? So the power that regenerates us, the power that brings us to faith in Christ and causes us to be born again, the power that enables us to live the Christian life, that power was first at work in raising Jesus from the dead. And that power to this day can raise us up when we're tired and when we're, when we're discouraged. It can resurrect our resolve. It can add energy to our endurance. It can add power to our perseverance. That's Paul's point. The, the mighty, glorious, wonder-working power of God. It's the same power that God used in the beginning when he created everything out of nothing in six days. It, it, it's the same power that, uh, that split the Red Sea so, so the, the children of Israel could walk right through. It's the same power that, that caused the sun to stand still in Joshua's day. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That power, that exceeding great, mighty, glorious power is at work in you. You can draw on that power. It'll keep you going. Here's the second argument. We not only have a great win in the uh, 
empowering reality of the resurrection. We also have a great word. This is verse 9. Speaking of the gospel here, Paul says in verse 9, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer. That word evildoer speaks of a hardened criminal. It's, it was used actually in, in, I think it was Luke's gospel, of one of the thieves that was crucified on, uh, on, on a, one of the sides of Jesus. It's used of burglars, murderers, traitors, and, and the Romans were treating Paul like a hardened criminal. And what was his crime? He was a preacher of the gospel. He's, he's upsetting the status quo, and the Jews are livid, and so they go to the Romans and they say, hey... This guy, Paul, over here, he's, he's preaching that Jesus is Lord, which was a threat to, uh, to Caesar. That was a threat to the Romans. So, so you can read in chapter 1, verses 8 to 12, chapter 2, verse 9, about Paul's chains. This is his second imprisonment. Unlike his first imprisonment, it's not looking like he's going to make it out of this second imprisonment alive. The time of his departure is at hand. So no doubt he's sitting in that prison cell, remembering the resurrection like he's told Timothy to do. But there's another thing he says to Timothy here in verse 19, verse 9, I might be chained, but the word of God is not. And so there's not only a great win, there's a great word. Paul revels in and draws encouragement from the triumphant nature of the Word of God. It's living. It's powerful. It's triumphant. It's, 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 it's marked by the very energy of God Himself because it's inspired. It's God-breathed. The Word of God is not chained. It's not fettered. It's not shut up. I might be shut up. I might be fettered, but the Word of God can't be bound. What a wonderful truth. It's a triumphant word that cannot be silenced by men or stopped by the laws of men. It advances with irresistible divine energy. Isaiah 55, verses 10 to 11, these are verses I've returned to regularly before and after preaching on a Sunday morning or teaching on a Sunday night. The word of God always, as it's sent out, the word of God always goes where and does what God has intended and purposed it to do. And that's a wonderful thing. As you and I engage in gospel ministry and commit ourselves to sacrificial cross-bearing as followers of the Master, we can be encouraged by His resurrection and the power that He's made available to us. But we're also encouraged by the fact that the word we preach and the word that we live by is unstoppable. And it makes us unstoppable. And it can't be stopped by those who are trying to get it to. In fact, real quick, I'll sneak this in here. Warren Wearsby in his commentary lists out just several things that, that, that are implications of this verse. The word of God is unstoppable. You can't chain it. You can't fetter it. You can't bind it. A couple implications of that thought. Number one, the Word of God is not bound by time or distance. I'm sure that, that, that plenty of us in this room could stand up and share our testimony of faith and talk about how there was some sermon we heard when we were a kid or some verse mom or dad quoted to us when we were younger, and years later, God used that 
to convict us and to convince us of the truth of the word and, and bring us to faith in Christ and bring, bring us back into, into uh, uh, a relationship with the Lord Jesus. People have been saved by sermons they heard five years ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago. Why? Because the word of God is not bound by time or distance. It can be 10 years later, it can be 10,000 miles away, and the word of God will find you and speak into your life. It can't be bound. The word of God is not bound by time or distance. The word of God is not bound by the will of man. I resisted the, the gospel and the word of God for six years before surrendering to Christ. I, I thought I had the final say. I don't want that. I'm not interested in that. Put up a fight to that when it came to the Bible and to the gospel. I resisted it. I bucked against it. And then when I got saved, I realized I kind of I had it all wrong. Because according to John chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, you and I are given the authority to be called sons of God. And that comes about not by the will of man, but by the will of God. It's not by flesh and blood. It's not by my efforts. I'm saved, not because I willed it, but because God willed it. And his, and his gospel and his word, it's irresistible. It overcomes my will, and in the will of God, I get saved. You can't bind that. You can't chain that. You can't fetter that. It's unstoppable. Here's another thought. The word of God is not bound by satanic opposition or political censorship. You see that in the book of Acts. You see it throughout church history. The church, over and over again, survives wave after wave after wave of persecution. They're targeted for assassination by principalities and powers. They're chained and they're imprisoned by governments, but the word of God can't be assassinated. And like the old hymn says, the Bible stands like a rock undaunted mid the raging storms of time. Here's one last thought quickly, and then we'll move on. The Word of God can't be bound by my weakness. Aren't you thankful for that? That the Word of God is not hindered by my ineptitude to preach it or to share it. I'll be the first to say that not every, not every sermon I, I preach is a home run. I think you could relate. Not every, you know, not every evangelistic conversation I have is, is a touchdown. We've all had those moments where, you know, we come back and play Monday morning quarterback and we think, man, I should have I done more homework. I should have, I could have said this differently, should have thought about this more, should have taken this opportunity. And, and we, should, we should take those, those moments and, and learn from them and, and commit to do better next time. But I'm thankful that on a Sunday night, when my head hits the pillow, I don't have to go to bed trusting in my ability to preach the Word of God. I go to bed trusting in, my, in the ability of the Word of God I preach, that it's not bound by my weaknesses. It's not bound by my ineptitude. And if my exposition was faithful to the Word, God can use it. Because the power, power's not in us, guys. The power's in the gospel. Romans 1.16, Paul says, or I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. That's how Charles Spurgeon, uh, one of my heroes in the faith, referred to regularly by many as the prince of preachers. That's how Charles Spurgeon was, was drawn to faith in Christ. 
by, by an inept preacher, primitive Methodist layman, wasn't even planning to preach that night, but it was a blizzardy, snowy night. The preacher at the church couldn't make it. A handful of people show up into the sanctuary, and, he, and this, this deacon in the church gets up, and he starts rambling somewhere along the line. He comes to Isaiah chapter 45, look to me and be saved all you ends of the earth. Then as he's preaching, his eye is drawn to this kid on the back row who snuck in out of the snowy night on, the, on his way to another church that evening, and he looks at this kid, this young kid named Charlie, and this kid looks like he's in rough shape, and he looks at this kid and he says, young man, you look miserable. Look to Jesus and be saved. And that night, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was led to faith by a guy who tripped over every word he spoke. Thank God that the word of God is not bound. A great win, a great word, a great work. This is the third argument for endurance, the hard yet joyful and glorious work of evangelism. Paul says, look, I'm suffering trouble as an evildoer. I'm chained, but the word of God is not chained. It's not bound, verse 10. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul motivates Timothy by his own example when, when the times are tough, when the fruit is small and imperceivable, when the enemy opposes Timothy, look to my example. I'm still going. I endure all things. One, because Jesus is risen. Two, because his word is irresistible. And three, because God's going to save his elect. And he's going to use my endurance and my perseverance and, and, and my my keeping on in the ministry and in the preaching to bring those who have not yet believed into faith. And I'm going to carry on in light of this great win and this great word and this great work. He says in verse 10, I suffered as an evildoer and, 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 and I endure all things and endure all things he did. Paul lost friends, gained enemies, imperiled his life, suffered imprisonment, targeted by Satan. Philippians chapter 3, verse 11, he says, I've suffered the loss of all things for Christ. You can read in 2 Corinthians 11 about shipwrecks and starvation and nakedness and burden for the churches. But here's what he's saying. It's worth it because souls are worth it. It's worth it because souls are worth it. I endure all things for, here's why, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. That, the word of, uh, idea of that word elect has to do with those whom God has chosen for salvation but have not yet believed, but they will when the irresistible word of God overcomes their resistance. And that doctrine of election fueled and fired Paul's evangelism. He, he's saying that the doctrine of election fires me up and it fuels me because, because there are people that I'm looking at and there are people I'm rubbing shoulders with. There are people that I'm ministering to that God's going to save. And here's the kicker. Here's the, here's the balance between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility those two parallel lines, like Spurgeon says. God's going to save some people, but the means by which he'll save them is the preaching of the Word of God. 
And the elect won't be saved without the gospel being preached, without you and me opening our mouths to preach it. You can read about that in Romans chapter 10. And here's the point. Paul reminds us that when you preach the word of God, you better be ready to suffer for it. People are going to resist the word of God until that irresistible word of God overcomes their resistance and saves them. Satan will attack it. Governments will censor it. Man and his depraved state will oppose it. But I'm going to preach on, Timothy. I'm going to endure all things. I'm going to be faithful. And I'm calling you to endure in this great work, Timothy, in light of an empty tomb. I'm calling you to endure in this great work in light of an irresistible gospel. And Timothy, I'm calling you to endure in this great work because souls that have yet to be saved depend on your faithful witness. So Timothy, endure all things. Give yourself to this great work. And we all need to do that. Spurgeon was the one, I think, who said that every Christian at the end of the day is either a missionary or an imposter. Give yourself to this great work. Here's the final argument as we wrap up this morning. A great welcome. And I'm, I'm about empty on time, so I'm going to just blow through this, if you don't mind. A great welcome. Verses 11 through 13, you have the promise of eternal reward. Timothy, endure. Kupameno. Remain under, don't get, don't, don't, don't get dragged down, get up when you fall down. And here's one final encouragement, here's one final argument for you as you do that. The thing attached to salvation is eternal glory. Verse 10, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, if we hoopameno, if we remain under, we shall also reign with him. That's the point that, that's being made here. Martyrdom simply opens the door to eternal life. Uh, endurance leads to millennial and eternal kingdom blessings. The Christians always got something in life to look forward to. You know, Romans 8:18, Timothy, remember that the sufferings of this present time, my son, are nothing to be compared with the glory that awaits. Fight your timidity. Stand up in a world that loves self and wants you to sit down, all the principalities and powers are lined up against you, but you get the power of Jesus at work in you. You get the living word of God in your hand to preach. You get the promise that beyond the trials and troubles and tribulations of this world lies eternal glory. So endure all things. Don't do what others are doing. Chapter 1, verse 15, many in Asia have turned away. Don't be like Demas, chapter four, who, who uh, in love with this present world has forsaken the man of God and the ministry of God and the message of God. There are a lot of people in this day that were leaving the church, really proving that they were never part of the church to begin with. Because remember what, what John says in, uh, in, in, in 1 John, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they were of us, they would have continued with us. Bible's very clear. People who don't persevere in faith, people who don't endure, were never saved in the first place. And it doesn't mean that you can't plateau. It doesn't mean like Peter, you're not going to have, 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 have a season where, you know, you're struggling and then you're restored. But for long periods of time, for great swaths of life, you're kidding yourself if you're living in rebellion, unfaithful to Jesus Christ, and then claim him to be your savior. And Paul says, 
Paul says, don't deny him. If you deny him, he'll deny you. Often we quote verse 13 to encourage ourselves, and we say, if, if we are faithless, he'll remain faithful. And, and we like that, and we say, man, when, when, I, when I lose my way, God is steadfast, he remains faithful. Great thought, probably not the best verse to use to substantiate that claim. This verse comes in the context of apostasy. If you become faithless and you abandon the gospel, God will be faithful to abandon you because that's what he's promised to do. That's what this verse is saying. If you're faithless, he'll be faithful to his word to abandon you. Scary thought. But the whole context here as we close and wrap this up is, hey, Timothy, you, you've, got, you've, got, you've got some wonderful things to look forward to, son, so keep pressing forward. You've got eternal glory, verse 10. You've got living with Christ, verse 11. Reigning with Jesus in the millennial kingdom and, and eternal state, verse 12. Oh, Timothy, wh what is is nothing to be compared with what will be. And so when you're in what is, don't lose sight of what will be. Endure all things. It'll be worth it all when we see Jesus. That's what certainly would help William Booth to persevere. William Booth, if you don't know that name, was the founder of the Salvation Army, which now is really but a shadow of what it once was before they decided to stick their nose into the, the thought and the things of the age. They were actually birthed in the gospel. They went to the gutters of England, saved people out of prostitution, drunkenness, saved them from the, from the guttermost to the uttermost. And they had a heart for the lost and the lonely and the overlooked. Interesting thing about them, especially in the early days, was they, they were often, they were often um, ridiculed and mocked by people in and out of the church. Thomas Huxley, the uh, agnostic antagonist of the gospel, was scathing in his criticism of Booth and the Salvation Army. He actually said that, that Booth's preaching was nothing but a ploy to shove sheep into his narrow theological fold. That's a quote. The evangelical church was even suspicious. They were doing things a little bit differently. Even the, 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 the great Earl of Shaftesbury turned on Booth. At one point, he accused Booth and the army of being in the spirit of Antichrist. One day, Booth's son, Bromwell, shows him yet another scolding, scathing article about Booth and about the Salvation Army. And here's what the great general said in response. He said this, Bromwell, 50 years hence, it will matter very little how people treated us. It will matter a great deal how we dealt with the work of God. And that's what Paul's saying to Timothy. That's exactly what Paul's saying to Timothy. 50 years from now, 500 years from now, 5,000 years from now, 5 million years from now, it won't matter how people treated you. It'll only matter how you dealt with the work of God. And if you're willing to die with him, you'll live with him.
And if you're willing to endure with him, you'll reign with him. And it won't matter in that day what people thought of you because you'll be in the presence of God where there's fullness of joy forevermore. Guys, when the, when the days are difficult and the times are tough and you feel like giving up, you need to ask yourself, is this going to matter in five years? Is this going to matter in 50 years, 5,000 years, 5 million years from now, what I'm about to do? The only thing that will matter is if you were faithful. Faithful to, to your Lord, faithful to his word, faithful to your wives and your kids, faithful in your school, faithful to your church, faithful to whatever ministry he's called you to. Did you live for the lost? Did you share the irresistible word? Did the thought of Jesus' resurrection raise you up every morning and send you off into the day with that irresistible word on your tongue? Endure all things because it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this, uh, this great word. And I pray now that your spirit will come and wield it and apply it in such a way that, that each one of us here would not only be hearers of it alone, deceiving ourselves, but doers of this word. Give us grace and strength to endure. We thank you for, for the promises of your word that make it so. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray.